How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. So mental and emotional well-being of the provider certainly has gotten a lot of traction lately. We've had it on the podcast quite a bit. We've spoken about it. We've spoken about the need for it. Um, And I think it's coming into the forefront more, coming into focus now more than ever, given all of the things that we've been through as an industry. But as much as we've spoken about it, I don't know that we've spoken about it enough or we've driven it home enough. I think it needs more attention. There is a staggering number and statistics that show that one in 10 providers admit to taking an, or making an attempt on their own life. And that's just terrible. And, and those are just the ones that are actually answering up to these types of surveys. What it does is it, it provides us with real content as to how bad we are as an industry right now with respect to taking care of ourselves. Today with me is somebody who is incredibly interesting, has an incredible story, has done incredible things, and brings some perspective to this. James Boomhauer is a critical care flight medic with Boston MedFlight. He also has his own platform about taking care of ourselves, the emotional and mental concept involved in what we do. It's called Stay Fit for Duty. James has some incredible insight as to how he came to this epiphany of, wow, we're not doing a good enough job taking care of ourselves. And I'm super excited to have him on today to tell his story and to go over what it is we need to do better when it comes to this emotional and mental well-being. James, thanks for joining me today, man. Mike, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So, James, talk to me a little bit about how this whole Stay Fit for Duty came into being. Absolutely. Um, Just for a little bit of background, uh, I am coming on my 18th year as a uh, pre-hospital care provider, uh, my 15th or 16th year as a paramedic, my eighth as a flight paramedic with Boston MedFlight, and uh, in between getting my EMT ticket and working at MedFlight, doing every odd job that a paramedic could do, right? Volunteer, paid, fire-based, concierge, you name it. I I did it if a paramedic could do it. Um, and all of the calls and trauma and stress and cumulative stress and PTSD that go with it, right? The, the ruined relationships, the, the heavy drinking, the, the terrible eating, the exercise, the no sleeping, the overtime instead of actual help, right? Really pushing back against what little help was offered. Um, and it, it all kind of came to a head for me uh, in two phases. Uh, it came to a head for me when a, a good friend and coworker of mine died by suicide. And watching an agency do the very best they can to care for the team amidst you know their own grief of, of losing a coworker, a colleague, and then really watching all of everything that I just expressed bubble up towards the end of my uh, orientation in my flight program. 
And in seeing that and in, in kind of watching it in real time while it was happening and then looking back on it, realizing that my story is not terribly unique and we need to talk about it. And if we if we talk about it and we reason we give each other resources and we say, hey, listen, I have done every job in EMS, just about every single job, because I'm sure somebody's going to tell me there's one thing that I haven't done yet. Right. But and, and here I am doing amazing medicine in a big city, loving my job, and I see a therapist and I get stressed and I need help and I need support and I need all of these things. And that's okay. That doesn't make me any less of a fantastic healthcare provider. It doesn't make me any less. And as you mentioned, we are literally killing ourselves. Mike, you mentioned that one in 10 providers have had some semblance of suicidal ideation. Uh, I'll take that a step further and say that 2017 data from the CDC says one in four first responders die by suicide. Wow. Like that's, that's tremendous, right? And that, that works out to uh, a first responder just about every four days in America dies by suicide. And I don't have to tell any of your listeners how close that hits home, right? I don't get anyone in this profession who's been in this profession for any length of time who is either directly affected or only has a degree of separation or two from a first responder suicide. This isn't something that we should be racing our military veterans to do faster than they do, right? Our military veterans measure their, their rates of suicide uh, in seconds and in minutes, and we're measuring them in days. And, and furthermore, days that for some of us are shifts, right? Some of us work four-day tours, and we're talking about the loss of life of a first responder, and we need to do better, and we can change it. And uh, there is, there's help out there. There's training out there. There are people like myself out there. And one of my big overarching goals is to ensure that you know that and to ensure that you know you have a safe place to come to and ensure that you know that you're not alone as you build your resilience and as you work through all of the complicated facets of being a first responder. So you built this platform for responders you know, because you came to the realization that this gap exists. But I, I did listen to your one of your lectures. You have some really great ones out there that I encourage everyone to go listen to. And you mentioned it when you, you know, first started here is that, you know, this kind of bubbled up during your orientation on Boston Med Flight. And I, I was wondering if you would share with the listeners what that story actually is and, and, you know, maybe go over what it is, because I, I found it fascinating. And I, and I know, I know that the majority of responders have had a similar type of ordeal, how they dealt with it, I'm sure is much different. So maybe you touch upon that. Absolutely. Um, I'll definitely try to try to be succinct in, in light of the podcast, but the, the long and the short of it is I was on cloud nine. Right. I'd just gotten off of orientation of a premier flight program and a flight program that I'd wanted to work out for quite some time, like hashtag goals. Right. Like we are we are doing the thing. I, I'm in my my mid 20s. Right. All trajectory is like doing all the great things. I'm off orientation um, at MedFlight. When you're new off orientation, they pair you with very senior partners. Right. Paramedic nurse team. So I have a very senior nurse. 
and my you know my expectations that day are really simple right think of any fto working with any brand new off training provider right don't make anybody worse and don't lose any equipment right those are like your two objectives for the day no high level thought no calculate the abg and tell me what you think we should know none of that just super super simple stuff um my coworker and I go to a uh, outlying hospital, uh, a very resource limited center that that routinely utilizes our services, uh, almost colloquially as like the resuscitation team, right? Like like we are routinely brought there for very very sick individuals, and it is one part for our ability to transport them to a tertiary care facility, and another part to help a small facility with a resuscitation, right? As a as a mobile resuscitation team. Um, and as I as I say in the talk right here is this this individual who is super super sick as I walk through the door and you know I'm trying to do all the things really quick I shake this person's hand and I talk in my talk about how that's like a poor man's uh, cranial nerve exam and a poor man's Glasgow coma like can you look at me can you reach your hand to mine do I get a sense of your skin color temperature condition as I do it and as I, I extend my hand to, to this man's hand every red flag is going off, right? He's slow to respond. He's really lethargic. He's ice cold. He's pale. Um, there are a number of parts of this resuscitation that um, aren't ideal long before my partner and I ever enter. And when this individual goes into cardiac arrest, I want nothing more than to tell you that the flight paramedic extraordinaire stands up straight, declares a code, and then makes every ACLS instructor shed a tear of pride, <laughs> right? And, and that is not what happened, right? I panicked. I freaked out. I, I did the polar opposite of what my partner wanted me to do, right? I was just not supposed to make anybody worse and not supposed to, you know, really lose my mind. And I absolutely went back to like day one of EMT school, right? I'm pushing people out of the way trying to do chest compressions. I am just not, not where... I should be mentally and certainly not where I should be in the clinical realm. Sure. Um, this was a, uh, this was an individual whose, whose uh, deterioration of cardiac arrest got everybody by surprise. Um, I, I don't say that lightly. That's not a dig at the hospital. I mean, a, a relatively healthy, big honking dude comes into the hospital. I'm not feeling great. Uh, turns out he has a, a raging and catastrophic uh, gastrointestinal hemorrhage that, got missed for a while and got missed until that individual is very, very sick. So when that individual then did die, everyone kind of spun out, right? It was, it was a huge lift on behalf of my partner to recontrol this arrest. This arrest goes on for the better part of 90 minutes. Um, as we all recognize that the cardiac arrest is coming to a close and the, and the outcome here is that this individual, um, will not survive and we're going to terminate care. Um, we bring this individual's wife to the bedside. Um, I have long been a strong advocate, long before I started Fit for Duty, long before any of this, that I encourage family members that want to be at the bedside to be at the bedside. They, they deserve to see what we're doing. They deserve to get that closure. They deserve to ask questions. That I understand this is a debated topic in the medical community, but that's my stance. Um, so being the good Irish Catholic that I am, uh, I feel it's my penance almost to stand next to this woman as she's begging her husband to stay alive, right? What do people do when they're, when they're completely out of control, right? They, they just are, are, you know, wake up, we have kids, you have to get out of here. I promised you and the kids ice cream once we left the doctor's office, just all of these tremendously, tremendously painful 
memories, right? I, to this day, and this call was, as I said, almost eight years ago, I can hear the three sentences that this woman said to her husband, and I can hear the scream that she let out when we pulled back the curtain, like it was an hour ago. Um, my, my team did everything we could with a fantastic hospital to do everything in our power to resuscitate a human uh, that we simply weren't able to. Um, the ride home in the aircraft, the subsequent get the paperwork done, restock the helicopter, do all the things, is really when all of this starts to unravel, right? Because the entire time I am a, you know, straight laced, looking up, straight head up. I've been a paramedic for well over a decade at this point, and I am fine, right? And how dare you assume that I'm not okay because that is not a human asking another human if they're okay. It's a threat to my machismo and my delicate sensibility, right? Like, I'm mad at you for assuming that I'm not okay. Well, you did just sit with a woman as the life drained from her husband's eyes. Like, this isn't an insignificant event that you just went through. Um, are you sure you don't need anything? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I go home. On the ride home, I'm trying to communicate with my significant other. Um, it's two in the morning at this point. So my significant other is sound asleep. Uh, I'm leaving voicemails that are uh, infinitely more aggressive. And, and by aggressive, I mean like begging for help, right? Um, I go home. I will tell everyone here that I drank every ounce of whiskey in my liquor cabinet and I passed out face down in a blood covered flight suit on my bed. Like many of us have done. Like a tale that is not too unfamiliar, right? For any of us, right? And and when I woke up the next morning, I woke up to the same number of missed calls that I'd given my partner. Um, where are you? Is everything okay? What happened? What do you need? And I, I, I talk in the presentation that I give about how I was at this intersection. And I had an option to just keep the paramedic machismo nonsense going and say, I'm fine. I'm so sorry. I yelled. Everything is okay. It was just a bad call, right? How many times have we said that? It was just a bad call. I'm okay. And don't assume that I'm not. Or I could take a bigger, shakier, deeper breath and say, I'm not okay. And I need some help. And I have no clue where to get it, which is a big part of what Stay Fit for Duty tries to do is ensure that you know where your resources are before you need them. So when you do take that incredibly brave and incredibly terrifying big deep breath and say, I do need some help, that you don't then have to embark on this journey by yourself and that you don't then have to say, so who do I go to? right? My, my employer meant me no malice, but the first three emails that I received about this call were related to documentation and billing, yep. right? And, and Mike owns an agency, right? He's a huge player in an agency. He completely understands how tremendously important those pieces of the puzzle are. But it was almost a week, like seven to 10 business days before somebody said, oh my God, are you okay? Like, I'm finally, like, reading the chart, right? Like, from top to bottom. Are you okay, and what do you need? And part of the change we're trying to make here, and we're really advocating to make through the creation of peer support programs and advocating for resource allocation and utilizing what you already have in place, is let's build a culture where that's the first question. First things first. 
are you okay, and what do you need? You will obtain the billing signatures, I promise. But let's start there. Yes. Absolutely. Your story is incredible. The the whole story is incredible, but also not new or different to, like I said, the majority of responders. The difference is that you've chosen to take that experience and pivot and make it into a positive experience where you're building something that is going to build the emotional stance and the the emotional stature, mental stature of yourself and then bring it to others. And I think it all starts, James, with vulnerability, right? I mean, I think that everybody needs to realize that and you mentioned it, the, the machismo of, of the responder and, the, and how we have historically compartmentalized every single bad thing we've seen because we're hardened and we have to be, and that's just the way we are. That's all crap, right? I mean, we are at an all-time high attrition in this industry. We are losing, we are hemorrhaging people, professionals by the day. And what's the reason? Well, I mean, there's a ton of reasons, let's be honest. I mean, EMS certainly is not going to build you a palatial estate in Bora Bora. We understand that. Um, It certainly doesn't get the notoriety that the other public safety disciplines may get. But I'll bring it a step further. We are mentally and emotionally damaged. And you parlay that on top of the pandemic and what we've come out of. People are cooked. Our industry is shot. Nobody wants to do it anymore. And there's a reason. Certainly the acute nature, the acuity of the pandemic and what we went through immediately. But it has built up to a point now where we have gone so long without helping ourselves that we're just beaten to a point where we can't do it anymore. Yeah. Yep. And and to your point, I think it's so important to remember that I like to make a ton of medical metaphors because it's a, it's a world and a language that we all know really well. And the more that I can tie this together to the stuff that you know really well, the better it'll stick and the less kind of froofy and frivolous it'll sound. When we go to the doctor, when we're kind of sick, we get a diagnosis, we get some medicine, we get some treatment, and we improve rather quickly. When we crawl into the hospital, being floridly septic for weeks, months, years, right? The recovery period for that is a long time. And I I think unfortunately, because in the pre-hospital emergency profession, we are very used at being super binary, dead to alive, sick to not sick, no airway to airway, right? Like we just, we have very black and white thinking at times. It's important to remember that when you make these steps, I I offer you zero easy fixes. Yep. I give you stuff that you can utilize tomorrow. I give you stuff you can utilize once we're off the phone, right? I can I can give you some really great tools to use, but the process takes a while. And I think because we are so used in the emergency healthcare realm to waiting until it's an emergency and then waiting for a quick fix that we don't also give the mental health professionals trying to help us a fair shake because nobody's fixing me after an intake. 
you know, one 45 minute session to like ask you a couple questions about my history as a paramedic is not going to fix me. It's not. I'm also not broken, right? It's really important to clarify that there isn't anything that needs to be fixed, but it's, it's important to understand that a good therapeutic alliance takes a little while, right? And, and the sooner that you can get these, these um, techniques and tools and resources in motion, A, the better you are when you are in crisis, because I 100% have hysterically bald in the waiting room of a human that I'd never met before. That's, a, that's an unfair way to meet somebody. Right. This poor mental health professional is just trying to, like, ascertain what my home address is. And I'm full tilt emotional. Right. If you if you get those puzzle pieces in place early, you can find a good connection. You can find someone that jives with you, your insurance, the whole kit and caboodle. And then when that event happens, it's a text message or a phone call to someone you've already met. It's not. I called EAP, which is a good resource if it's used correctly, right? Or I, I called a crisis line and, and now I'm kind of at the mercy of whatever I get versus being a little bit more proactive. Right. I, and again, I think that we're our own worst enemy in a sense that we know that we need help, but we also know that mental health they're, they're, or, or mental well-being is not something that comes immediately, like you mentioned, right? Well, I know <laughs> I was there for 40 minutes already. Okay. Well, that's great. (laughs) Except it's not going to work that way. And so it's like, you know, oh, well, now what I have to go back, you know, and certainly you have playing into it, like, you know, not wanting to be vulnerable, not looking weak, the stigma of that. And then also I think the barrier to finding care, right. Or finding something that works for us or that is available, available to us as responders has become the biggest obstacle. Yes. Yes. I, the only the only kind of other side of that coin is I want to make sure you know what all your resources are. Right. And if you know every single resource you have and you know who your insurance can help you subsidize and all of these other pieces, it is still hard. I, I cannot get a same day appointment with my own therapist. I've been seeing them for three years. Right. But it gets easier and it's less, it's less overwhelming to say, I need to find a therapist, go, right? And then you, you get a match that might not be a good match for you or you, know, you, find, you find someone that might not have the level of cultural competence that you want them to have or cultural you know, kind of informed care, trauma-informed care, and you're kind of at the mercy of whoever picks up the phone or whoever has an appointment available. Uh, the barriers are there and, and the mental health profession as a whole, as someone who is, who is actively working to become a mental health professional, uh, the field knows that, and the field is working really, really hard to fill those gaps as well. So uh, I ask anyone who's kind of nodding their head when Mike said, you know, but there's just nobody there, please don't give up. There are countless 24-7, 365 we can get you out of the weeds. We can help handle you, help you handle the crisis that you're in. Well, we help you find a provider. You are, you are not alone in this game and please keep fighting. Well, James, with that then, you know, I think the listener, you know, would want to know how does stay fit for duty, you know, get us into this realm? How does it assist us and make it easier for us to find that help? Sure. So we do this a handful of different ways. Uh, First and foremost, we give you tools that you can utilize the same day, 
right on on my instagram i have a resiliency toolkit you can also find that on my facebook you can email me for it if you want it we can we can give you like little tangible bits of what you can do that day here are some techniques that work here are some things you can look into we also help develop a blueprint of how you go about finding a therapist who is your insurer who does your employee assistance program who are the mental health professionals near you and who can we help you find from Beyond there, we help agencies build, create, and develop peer support teams. So you have kind of this in-house network of individuals that can help you at times of crises. And we just kind of stack these all on one another. It, it is very individualized depending on what the, what the person in need wants and how we can help them. Um, we are a relatively small shop. Uh, so there, there's, there's myself and uh, one or two other people that occasionally help. But we work really hard to make sure that nothing goes unanswered and we can at a minimum provide you a reference that you need to help you move forward. And if somebody is looking to get a hold of you and your team, you know, maybe just share with us the best way to go about that. Absolutely. Um, Instagram is my, my social media of choice. Uh, I am at stay on fit the number four duty. And I'm sure Mike and I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, my email address is stayfitforduty at gmail.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, but Instagram and email are the two, uh, the two biggest caveats to get a hold of me. You know, James, I, I again, I, I want to thank you for coming on because you're, you're inspirational in the way that you handle this and you look at this and, and you look at it from a different angle. And, and as I said, in the beginning of the podcast, you know, this is something that is starting to get more traction now, but certainly we need to be doing a lot more work for ourselves. And, and you certainly are putting the right foot forward in doing this. And obviously, <laughs> obviously you're doing this as collateral, given how many responsibilities you have with your, your you know, Boston Med Flight job and, and being part of the solution medically, but now also psychologically for, you know, the provider. It, it's a full circle. And, and I certainly appreciate all of your efforts. It is, it is absolutely my pleasure, and thank you so, so much for having me on. And just before we go, the last two pearls that I would like to give anyone listening are, first and foremost, it's okay to not be okay, and needing help, resources, what have you, does not make you weak, and it does not make you undeserving to have this job. It's actually the polar opposite. It makes you a better healthcare provider. So well said, James, truly is. Uh, again, I think that th this is something that all providers need to realize is real. Um, they need to acknowledge, they need to embrace that vulnerability within them and make sure that we're continuing to take care of ourselves because without that, we can't take care of others. So James Boomhauer, again, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to thank you for all that you are doing and continue to do. Thank you very much, sir. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me and stay safe. And thank you for listening. Again, we are getting closer and closer to EMS World Expo this year in beautiful Orlando, Florida, October 10th to the 14th. Make sure you register if you haven't already done so. And we look forward to some more podcasts coming down the pipeline in the very near future here. We have some really great guests lined up just like today. So continue to listen. Thanks for listening today. I'm Mike McCabe. Talk real soon. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 